Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another final episode of the True Sight Talks podcast. It's your boy, Cosmic Charlie, also known as Jeremy Long. Then we got Lucas. Hello. <laughs> I'm Lucas Wood. He is. I'm alive, and I'm breathing, and I woke up today. Yeah. I'm here. I'm in yeah. this place. God, my fucking eye keeps twitching. I want to know what this is. Ah. Cataract. Dying. It literally won't stop. Spasm. Yeah, no, it's like, it's not my eye. It's my eyelid, like, twitches. Mm, weird. It's just annoying, because it's yeah. like, why do I have this weird, like, tick why? now? Why do I got this tick now? because you got into psychedelics, man. Maybe. Your brain's like, oh, maybe, baby. We're diverting power to the islands. It's like, no, not yet. We don't need that. <laughs> Your brain's like, well, I'm doing it anyways. Fuck it. Send it. Full send. Full send. I'm sending these islands. <laughs> um, so we got some cool shit for you guys. Yeah, this one's going to be fucking, it's going to be different. going to be wacky. going to be so, weird. With our first episodes, uh, or not first episodes, but like the... Monday episodes of the week, we're going to be doing just like, you know, normal, old, normal shit. old shit, you know, your goofy boys. I mean, we're going to be goofy either way because we're just like that. That's, but that's, our that's Friday episodes are now going to consist of two topics uh, that each uh, host picks. Um, we're going to have interchanging hosts all the time. Um, so Lucas might not be here all the time. And, you know, we might have Noah Shockley on or Alex might have a topic. Um, but... The cool thing about it is I'm going to be picking um, bands to kind of dive into uh, their careers and uh, kind of give you guys some, like, background information uh, of popular bands and, you know, rock, rap, whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, Lucas, uh, go ahead and explain. Yeah, so I'm just going to be, I mean, because this this is what I'm interested in, I'm going to be covering a filmmaker every week or whatever, whenever I'm on here. Uh, And so we just randomly select these. We, We have a list of them. We just... Get it picks them at random for us. This week ended up being some fucking big hitters. Yeah. Um, which I'm a little bit mad that my first time that I ever did it was this person, but like because it's just a dense fucking person yeah. to cover. I am kind of mad. But yeah, so I mean, we're gonna do film, and then I think like Noah and I are probably gonna do philosophy sometimes, you know, and we're gonna cover some some, uh, you know, certain ideals that that different philosophers had and kind of you know give our in- input on those. And, uh, well, I mean, we're just trying to make these episodes different. You know, we're, we're trying to Give do something some that's because we, we, we work ourselves into a corner with <clears> conversation <throat> where we just talk about the same shit. And so we want to make this an opportunity for us to learn about things, make this an opportunity for you guys to learn about shit and, uh, you know, find some artists that you didn't know of. I mean, I'm sure you guys have heard these artists yeah, today, before. but if you might not, not have yeah. heard about their lives and shit. So. Let's, uh, that's kind of what we're going to be yeah. talking about. So let's, let's fucking dive let's, into let's it. Let's do it. So for I'll this, let you go first because yeah. I want to... That's I, fine. <laughs> um, for this, uh, for this uh, episode, for this week, we're going to be covering... I'm going to be covering uh, Pink Floyd, one of my favorite... Actually, what if we do... Just as... Sorry to cut you off. Like, what if we just do it like section by section? Like, you do your first section, I'll do my first section, and we'll bounce back and forth that way. It's not yeah, one person cool. talking for the whole time, that'd you know? That'd be kind of cool. Yeah, yeah that makes it a little bit less stressful, too. I mean, it, I, I feel pretty pretty good yeah. on yours. I mean, I definitely didn't rehearse this, so you guys are going to see me reading. 
Yeah, I'm going to try not up. to I'm I'm going to try not to read. We did some basically, actually I'm actually kind of excited about this. Basically did like fucking school reports on these people. Um but it'll be nice because these are filmmakers that I, you know, enjoy yeah. and shit. And now I'll basically get to like actually Talk really know it. their work and yeah. really know them and, and really, cause like I've just learned shit just yeah. through doing this that I was like, oh, I didn't even think about that, you know? Well, so let's, let's fucking let's go. Kill it. All right. So it's Pink Floyd. I'm sure you guys have heard of the famous Pink Floyd, one of the greatest rock bands, if not mm-hmm. the greatest rock band to really kind of bend how music is made and to take music and freak it yeah and uh i mean everyone knows dark side of the moon everyone knows the wall those are their mm-hmm. two big hitters and obviously you know they're they're big successes but um they have a lot of great shit on them so i'll kind of do like a quick rundown of uh you know how they were founded um you know just like a quick summary and then i'll dive deep into the actual like forming of the band and everything okay so pink floyd was founded in 1965 by sid barrett he was the original uh the original guy of lead man of pink floyd um he was on guitar and vocals roger waters was on bass and vocals nick mason on drums and richard wright uh oh wait i think i have a typo (laughs) (laughs) i think nick mason oh i think nick mason was on Nick Mason was on uh, on drums, and then uh, Richard Wright was on rhythm guitar. My bad. Um, so Pink Floyd uh, gained a lot of their uh, fame early off by performing in underground in the in the London underground. It's kind of like what we do, like DIY. Mm-hmm. Yeah, small um, shows. And you know, shit. if you're playing Lost Lake every fucking week, you're just gonna basically be a house band. And right. so with that, you know, it kind of. That's kind of what got them in front of a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it really just helped like their overall thing. So uh, Sid Barrett, uh, he gained success, uh, success with the band uh, by writing uh, Piper at the Gates of Dawn, which actually, you know, it was their debut album in 1967 and as under Pink Floyd, and it blew up. Like mm-hmm. it was their like national success immediate. So mm-hmm. that's pretty an incredible thing to just be like, oh, here's well, our first it, like big album. They had been they've been doing it for years. That's that's the thing that like because I always was just like, okay, how the fuck did they just blow up right mm-hmm. away, you know, right when they came out? But but they but they'd been doing that for what five years before they right. actually did you know yeah. got that record. Well, yeah. Out. I mean, who who knows how? I mean, Led Zeppelin did kind of the same thing where. They went in and out, you know, playing bars and stuff under different names. And then right. when they finally were kind of being watched, um, their manager's like, how about you just like, someone said like they're going to crash and burn like the Led Zeppelin. And they're like, oh, let's drop some letters off of lead and then just like we'll be called Led Zeppelin. Mm-hmm. And then boom, like right. it, it, instantaneous success. Um, so, you know, if you didn't know, Sid Barrett had uh, schizophrenia. Um, a lot of mental health issues. Uh, he was an incredible musician, but I think you know, Acid uh, kind of brought the schizophrenia out of him. Um, they were having a lot of trouble actually playing. He would just stand up there and stare into the sky and shit. Yeah, which if and, you haven't seen videos of, there's I mean, there's some videos of, of him tripping, just, you know, tripping yeah. on Acid. And he's like, you can tell he's probably like 18, 19 in, mm-hmm. the, in the videos. And it really is kind of crazy to watch, but there's there's footage later on when he started to really go downhill where he's like fucking just zoning yeah. out. And yeah. it's like sad to see. It's it, really it's, sad it's, to see. It's depressing, man. It's kind of, it's, it makes you just like worry that like, mm-hmm. you know, what if something That could like, happen yeah. to fucking anybody. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so after, you know, the the whole thing with Barrett, Barrett left in, 19, in 1967. David Gilmore, the, the lead guitarist, as we all know him, Mm-hmm. know of Pink Floyd now uh, joined in December of 67 and uh, you know after Barrett left um, 
early in 68, uh, Waters became the front man and the lead songwriter. So how so, did, did Gilmore know that? Was he like friends with them before? Or? So I think I would have to try to remember, but I think Gilmore um, might have been friends, uh, like acquaintances of Barrett. No, he was acquaintances of Waters. Okay. Because they studied near the same schools. Like, they were in, like, middle Middlesex of London. Like, mm-hmm. they were near each other, and they kind of had interchanges and, or acquaintance there. Mm-hmm. Um, but Waters and Barrett were like me and you. They've always been friends. Right. Like, Waters would go and hang out at uh, Barrett's house when Barrett would just shred on the guitar at his mom's house. And, like, hmm. after, you know... I'll get into the whole story of that, but um, so that's basically like the quick rundown of that stuff. Um, so diving into the actual formation of Pink Floyd, it began in 1963. Um, so Ro- uh, Roger Waters and Nick Mason were studying at uh, Lon- London Polytechnic, uh, which was like a big architecture school in mm-hmm. London, and uh, they were introduced. Uh, to some other people who were studying there and they you know they're all kind of interested in music so they all started getting together and the six of them you know they started a band called the sigma six and they started Mm -hmm. playing all over london um and you know they had the the members are like keith noble clive metacalf shaley noble which is keith's sister and richard wright who went on to be part of pink floyd and then left Mm -hmm. later on um basically uh, Waters and Mason moved in together and they started just writing and recording like like crazy. Um, they added, after Mason moved out in 1964, they added a new guy in. Uh, his name was Bob Close. He was a new guitarist. Uh, moved in with Waters and they started, you know, kind of coming up with new shit to do. Um, they went over, they had like a shitload of name changes, but they finally set on T-Set. So T-Set was the big precursor to Pink Floyd mm-hmm. and it was before Barrett joined and uh, yeah so they just toured around London as T-Set mm-hmm. um, but yeah so yeah <laughs> you want to do your section? Sure yeah alright so I'm covering Jean-Luc Godard which is um, he's I mean I'm sure a lot of people have heard his name at least really when you think about when you think about like cinema you think about him, you know, he's, he's kind of like the, one of the main fucking figures within it. Yeah. And even if you look up like influential filmmakers, he always comes up at the top, like number one on the list, you know, right. like, which actually surprised me above like Stanley Kubrick above, uh, you know, Steven Spielberg, people like that. He's number, number one. one. <clears throat> and, um, really, I mean, researching him has been kind of interesting cause he is, it's a lot more dense of a character than I had anticipated really. Mm-hmm. Um, I always kind of thought, I don't know why I thought this, but I always thought he was kind of just like a quiet artist, you know, and he, cause he's been making films from the mid fifties to today, you right. know, he still makes shit. And so he's like 80, 88, 89 years old, still mm-hmm. making movies, you know? Damn. And so to me, I was always like, oh, he probably just, that's what he does. He just stays real to himself and shit. Not at all. Not, not at all the person that I had anticipated. So he was born in 1930. Uh, to an extremely wealthy family. I mean, his dad was a doctor, um, and his mom was the daughter of the of the founder of uh, I think it's called Bank Party Bus or something mm. like that. I don't know how to pronounce half this. I'm gonna I'm gonna butcher half this shit because well, you're not. I don't speak yeah. fucking French. <laughs> um, and we, uh, that's it's like a international banking group, so it's fucking huge, right. you know. And uh, so he kind of spent his time between. Um, 
Switzerland and France, bouncing back and forth between there because his family was kind of in Switzerland, and then he went to school in Paris and shit. And he initially did really fucking bad in school. Like, didn't uh, they have a um, uh, exam that you take, which is basically like a like what SAT we have? Or yeah, SAT. it's well, it's basically like yeah, exactly. Well, you you take that test to see if you're like worthy of passing. It'd be like high school, you know. Mm-hmm. And so uh, he failed that test, and I can't remember what it's called. Um, let me see if I actually have it on here. Um, the baccalaureate exam. Uh, he failed that initially and had to move back with his parents in Switzerland. Um, and he lived lived there for a little bit and kind of studied some more and stuff. Right. And uh, came back in 1949 and passed his exam. And then he went and uh, was going to study uh, anthropology and huh. in Paris. And then, but never went to class. You know, he just kind of he pulled the fucking us. If I would have gone to school, I wouldn't yeah. have gone to shit. Yeah. You know, uh, I didn't go to shit in high school. I don't know how I got through it. But like, um, and instead of going to class, he ended up hanging out with just a, fil- a group of film critics who later on, ba- almost everybody in this group kind of went on to create the French New Wave. Mm-hmm. And because uh, they had they had what was called like cinema clubs there at the time, uh, which is something I wish that we had because it sounds like fucking heaven. It's basically a bunch of people get together. They all just like watch and critique and fucking write about films and then they just all sit around and talk about them and shit. It's just like, and that's all they did all the time. That's, that's that was their cool. life, you know. Yeah. And uh, and just I don't know. It, it sounds like it because it was really like the heyday of cinema in France right, right. then. You know, right, like right. post-war up until like the l- like late '60s was kind of like the the, the big. pinnacle of film there. You know, and so they were in the perfect breeding ground for this thing. And you know, these guys are just the bacteria that rose to the top of the breeding ground you know and right, became right. the became the people that we know today and um and so he wasn't i mean he didn't really wasn't really interested in cinema from like a young age you know he uh like a lot of you know i hear a lot of filmmakers that like they always knew right and uh, but he started reading essays uh from people about cinema i think one of them was called like uh that Outline of a psycho outline of a psychology of cinema. I mean, I wonder if I typed that in wrong. That kind of doesn't sound right. Um, and like, I think that maybe after reading those, he just kind of started to, you know, maybe like think like maybe the... this is something that I'd like to do yeah, yeah, yeah. because it seems like he kind of started just gravitating towards hanging out with these film critic people, you know. And then he started. He went on and started writing. Uh, I mean, all these people in, in this film critic circle like started making magazines and stuff mm-hmm. and making their own publications. And uh, and he had been friends with them for a few years by then. So when he started writing, they would publish it for him and stuff. Gotcha. And so he published a few, um, published a few articles on stuff, and, and a lot a lot of them were um, criticizing filmmakers that I didn't think he would have criticized. You know, like people like Orson Welles. Huh. And uh, and then uh, holding up, can't remember who. I'm I'm really bad at like reading off of shit. That's why I'm kind of trying to remember it as I'm going. He was a big defendant of uh, the the shot reverse shot technique, which mm-hmm. to me it's kind of strange that there's even that there was like an argument about it because now it's like the staple piece of uh, right. conversational portions in film, you know. Exactly, yeah. Which it, it, for <clears throat> for people who don't know what that means, it's like. If you're watching a movie and you see, you know, a close-up of one person talking and then it's a shot over their shoulder of the other person or even just 
a shot of the other person. It's going back and forth of them right. conversating that shot reverse shot, you know? Right. So literally every single movie that you watch now has that, right. you know? And uh, that, that is weird that it was a big Yeah, argument. so it's super, it, 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 like reading that, I was kind of like, I wonder why people were even like questioning, questioning that. that. But you also got to remember like before, you know, it was something it, new and it was... Well, it wasn't, like, new totally because, like, this is 1950, you know? And so there's a, there's been a lot of movies using that technique and stuff. But before that, everything was kind of framed as if they were plays. You know, you'd have right. one wide shot of shit happening and everything would happen on that frame and then it'd move on to other, you know, something else. And um, so, and I think at that point in cinema, there was, like, there was so much shit being developed, everybody was kind of just, like... Oh, this way is the best. This way is the best. This way is the best. You know, right, right. And so I think there was a lot more room for that type of discussion because, like, now it's just like, okay, we have all these, like, like yeah. set things of doing, you know, and um, but like within these clubs, you had people uh, like Francois Truffaut, who's kind of he's held as like the creator of the French New Wave. He's kind of the one that like kicked it off. So mm-hmm. really, when you hear like this story, he's kind of like the main the main boy, you know, he's, right. and, uh, and then you had like, uh, Claude, uh, I'm going to butcher these again, but like, uh, Jacques, or Jacques Rivette and Claude Trebol, uh, who are also both, you know, people who grew up within that like film critic circle and right, stuff right, and right, then right. went on to make films. Um, that is kind of a cool thing. Like, yeah, no, it's, it's, well, I think that it's such a pinnacle moment in film because it's such a strange thing, like a yeah. strange occurrence that it even happened, you know? Right. And uh, so the movie that actually like started the French New Wave was the Four Hundred Blows. It's like that's like the movie that is said to have started it, which is a Francois Truffaut movie, and um, which actually we've had as a movie of the week, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I will, I want to cover Truffaut also. Um, so, like Goddard, reading about this, Goddard always talked about how seriously that generation took cinema, and he said this thing that I really liked uh, from that. Uh, he said, in the 1950s, cinema was as important as bread, but in but it isn't the case anymore. We thought cinema would assert itself as an instrument of knowledge, a microscope, a telescope. At the Cinematheque, I discovered a world which nobody had spoken to me about. They told us about Gautier, but not Dreyer. We watched silent films in the era of talkies. We dreamt about film. We were like Christians in the catacombs. Damn. Which... That's and a, I mean, just chill, yeah, yeah, just from just from hearing that, you yeah. can tell how like you know Invested, serious yeah. uh, how yeah. serious they were about it. And, um, like, and, and just for, uh, like the names that I get out there, like, um, I probably pronounced that wrong, but, uh, Gautier is a, um, a, uh, a German writer. Mm-hmm. Let me hear. I'm just gonna. Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. Goethe. Okay. Goethe. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, see, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not good with names. It's all good, man. Um, and then, but the other guy, Dreyer, is a filmmaker. So it was kind of they were talking, and you can see that in these films, they're more about poetry uh-huh. than they are about film. Right. All, and they, when they do reference film, they're usually criticizing it um, or breaking rules that it had set. You know, right. which is why it's such like a, a shifting moment in film because everything that they were doing was like break, like groundbreaking. You know, um, and so. At this point, you can kind of see him gaining all of his knowledge that right. he goes on to use against cinema, you know? Right. Because uh, he's, you know, watching all these people, like he called uh, called Wells and De Sica, like formalistic and overly artful, overtly art- artful. 
um, and then uh, you know goes on to make, write articles mainly around, about techniques and stuff, which oh. was uh, you can tell he was really watching the films to, about how they were shot, you know, right, right, and uh, which I think is why he became one of the most prominent people within that group because he cared so much about that the way we well, yeah, focusing on the way that things are shot okay. and because uh, a lot of those french new waves movie movies at least in the early days they almost were shot like um like documentaries they were or like you're just like you're just following a person through their day you know they shot them like handheld and stuff yeah, his like shots samurais right well yeah yeah and like his shots are like you know locked down they're insanely per like crafted you know like right. paintings and, and uh but that wasn't how a lot of the other ones were awesome. they were just kind of poetic but, oh. So I'll let you go on to your next yeah, one for it. Okay. Um, so leaving off and when Bob Close uh, joined um, T-Set, that's where I'll, I'll start from. So basically, uh, Noble and Metacalf left T-Set to start their own band. Mm. And uh, that was like late 1964. Uh, Sid Barrett was actually a childhood friend of Roger Waters. Mm-hmm. And so he came into the picture after moving to London to study. Mm-hmm. And uh, Roger Waters reached out to him, and then he was like, he basically was like, yo, like, do you want to come join this, join our band? And Barrett was like, yeah, man. And so basically, after all that kind of played in, Close introduced the band to singer uh, Chris Dennis, a technician with the Royal Air Force. In December of 1964, they secured their first recording time at a studio in West uh, Hampstead, though one of Wright's friends, uh, uh, through one of Wright's friends, when the RAF assigned Dennis to, like, go fucking deploy um, in 1965, Barrett became the band's frontman. So you see, like, they added more people. So Barrett, like, off the cuff, like, Barrett wasn't the frontman yet. It, mm-hmm. Like, Pink Floyd, you know, wouldn't have been a thing if Dennis would have stayed, most likely. Right. Uh, but since he got deployed, I mean, the only logical option was, like, yo, let's just have Barrett do it because, you know, he's right. a fucking incredible guitarist and singer. So they had, they had him do that. Um, later that year, they became a resident band at the Countdown Club. So it's like us playing at Lost Lake. So mm-hmm. they're playing there. Uh, they'd fucking play all night from like late night until early morning. They played like three sets, ninety minutes each. Um, and during this period, the, ninety minute sets are rough too. I yeah, can't imagine doing multiple ones. Exactly. Like we played a we played an hour and what twenty minutes in yeah. LA, and that was it was. Right. Long time, yeah, dude. Man. It's it's a long fucking set. So, oh, but during mm-hmm. this period, the band. Re- uh, uh, the band released uh, songs, or they realized that songs could be extended mm-hmm. uh, with just like really lengthy, like intricate solos. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, like when you're listening to Pink Floyd and you have that, you know, fucking three and a half minute solo where it's just like shred town. Mm-hmm. They realized that very early on, and so they could actually just like that's how they could play ninety minutes long. I mean, like mm-hmm. if you play a ten minute solo where you just shred, yeah, town. then you play nine songs. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So. Um, after pressure from his parents and advice from college tutors, Close quit the band in 1965, and Barrett took over lead guitar as well. The group I bet first those fucking college people feel dumb as shit. Oh, now. dude, I a lot of I those, bet he feels dumb. Well, a lot of those people, like you know, like Metacalf and Noble, like I wonder what they're thinking, man. They're like, there's nothing on them because because they, they let, just yeah, faded they into obscurity. You yeah, know? that's it's uh, sad to hear that. It know? is sad, but you know, that's how that's the, the life they were meant to live. Yeah. You know, so. Basically, where the name Pink Floyd came from was actually from Barrett. So they they started referring to themselves as Pink Floyd Sound mm-hmm. after they had you know the 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 I guess the hierarchy changed um, mm-hmm. in 1965. Barrett created the name on a spur of the moment. So basically, he had two records in his uh, 
and like his collection mm-hmm. and the way he actually got the name was he had a record from pink anderson which is like a phenomenal blues artist as well as floyd council so mm-hmm. two really big blues people and if you didn't know in london back in the 60s blues was popping like mm-hmm. if you played blues rock like the rolling stones when they came through they blew the fuck up in, right. in the uk so it's just kind of cool to hear that like barrett was like oh fuck like i have these two you know blues records like Pink Floyd, let's just do that. And so they went under Pink Floyd Sound. They're they're still playing like big underground pubs and shit like that in London. Uh, and then they started like to get like actual paid gigs. Right. And so one time they were playing, and this guy, this professor Peter Jenner, came to the show, and he like took notice of him because he was like, "Damn, I've never heard this type of psychedelia before." Like mixing because they were kind of playing like bluesy psychedelia shit. And uh, his friend, Andrew King, uh, was like, he had a pretty wealthy family. And so the two of them were like, hey, we should like get together and like get this band, you know, signed or something like we should create something for them. So basically, Jenner said like he was impressed by the the sonic effects that Wright and Barrett shared. So like them playing together simultaneously, like they just had this perfect chemistry and it was just like a new sound. So uh, Jenner and King... uh, they basically had very uh, little knowledge of, like, how to run, like, a music business. But right. they said, fuck it, we're going to do it anyways. And mm-hmm. so they started, So they're like us. Yeah, basically, yeah. <laughs> and so they started uh, Black Hill Enterprises with uh, King's Inheritance. Mm-hmm. And they went on to uh, go, go ahead and start signing, signing Pink Floyd Sound mm-hmm. uh, under Black Hill. And uh, Jenner became their manager and everything. So that's kind of like a cool thing they're just like fuck it let's like get these guys big um after a while jenner was like hey i think you should take off the sound part of pink floyd and that's how we know him today Mm -hmm. so jenner was like i think i think i think it's a better a better sound or a better like a better sounding name than pink floyd sound pink floyd Mm -hmm. just it flows right so he initially was like you should do that and they're like okay well yeah let's do it so after that, uh, they you know they kept performing at the Countdown Club. They experimented with long instrumental excursions, and they began to expand them with rudimentary but effective light shows. So, you know, like laser shows and shit. Mm-hmm. Like they were first, they were like one of the first bands to go. Yo, we're gonna throw up some images, and it's gonna make the show even more psychedelic. Right. Um. Basically, uh, the Financial Times and the Sunday Times uh, wrote an article about them, and after launching their new magazine it the other they in quote they uh they said pink floyd played throbbing music while a series of bizarre colored shapes flashing on a huge screen behind them and apparently it was very psychedelic so really like the uk probably didn't even know what psychedelia was because it was really big in the states obviously right. you have, like grateful dead led zeppelin uh jefferson airplane all those big guys so in the uk this is kind of like a new a new fucking thing. They're like right. Well, it's like I like, like, said to you. It's like you know, if you if you have somebody that doesn't know what like trap rap is and something that's like supposed to be that, you know, they'd yeah. probably be like, and apparently it was super trappy. You know, yeah, like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's it's kind of funny how like people will just like label it. I think it's psychedelic. I'm not sure. It was it was apparently uh, really psychedelic. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like they're talking to an American. They're like, right, man, that was fucking psychedelic, bro. And they're like, oh fucking, what is that? What mean? is psychedelic? <laughs> like. Um, so after the fruition of the band in 1966, the band strengthened their relationship with Black Hill. So Jenner and King, um, they started actually like gaining a pretty big popularity in the UK. 
Uh, the cool thing about it is they went on to uh, signing with EMI, who owned Abbey Road, mm-hmm. in 1967, which leads you to their first big successful debut album, uh, uh, Piper at the Gates of Dawn. Um, that was released in August of 1967, and it gained like fucking quick success. Uh, they charted two singles, and the problem with all that was is at that time Barrett was like you know he was like going down he was yeah. going downhill he was deteriorating fast and Waters knew it and like you know it's like if you're watching me or if I'm watching you you know what can you do right like you're watching your good friend just like lose it and like they said that like Barrett or Waters would like drive Barrett to the hospital like all the fucking time and he was just like really worried about him and so after you know getting close to the end of the year uh, Waters invited David Gilmore to join the band in late December of 1967, and basically that was just the start of pushing, you know, Barrett, Barrett out. out. And uh, so, you know, there was this altercation with Barrett, where the last show that they played, um, Barrett had you know a mental breakdown, and the venue owners were like, "Hey, are you, are you going to collect your your guy?" And David Gilmore is quoted to say, "Why should we even bother?" And then after that, the next day, Waters met up with King and Jenner, and Barrett agreed to leave because he he realized, you know, he's holding them back. Just not fit to do yeah. it, yeah. And so, after all that, um, really, like, that's when Pink Floyd took off. That's when they started getting their international success. I mean, they had been playing London and touring around the UK for fucking 10 years, or like almost 10 years at that point. Mm-hmm. So, like, they had a following in the UK for sure, but... Once Barrett left, and once they put out Saucer Full of Secrets mm-hmm. and Metal, that's when they started to gain their you know international shit, mm-hmm. uh, touring the United States and all that. So I'll leave off there, and uh, we'll switch over to your second point. All right. So um, this is kind of where he like actually started making shit, you know. So he did the film critic stuff forever. Is writing films for or writing a writing. Um, pieces on films and stuff for a long time and uh he had returned to to switzerland where his parents lived and his parents had had a divorce Mm -hmm. and um so this dude that was the way i wrote it on here this dude that was banging his mom helped him get a job and so he became a construction worker on a uh, for a company that was building a dam and uh and he became really fascinated with the dam and wanted to uh wanted to make a documentary about it hmm. and so even when the dam was completed he got another job as like a switchboard operator there just so he yeah, could stay so he, there yeah and uh, and he went out he, cool. he had a yeah he had like a 35 millimeter camera that like somebody had given him you know it was like a present from somebody and so he shot the the whole documentary and everything and um and he it called it uh operation beton <laughs> or Operation Concrete. And uh That's kind of a cool name in English. Operation yeah. Concrete. It yeah. sounds like a fucking CIA thing. And uh so after that the, once he once he completed it, the documentary was bought by the company that that had built the dam for publicity, you know, shit. Mm-hmm. And uh I think once he did that, I think Goddard realized like, "Oh, I can do this," you yeah. know. And uh, so he moved back to Paris after that to, like, go make movies with all the homies he had, you uh-huh. know, because all those guys had started making their own shit by then. Truffaut was writing scripts nonstop. Right. And basically when he gets into this stage, it sort of, I connected with it very strongly. It feels like the stage that we're in with, like, Ryan and Eli and me and you, like, yeah. 
all writing shit, trying to work on shit, and we're all trying to help each other out, but, like, nothing can get made. Nothing yeah. gets off the ground, you know what I mean? And so, like, Truffaut would write a script. They'd all try to make it. Nothing would happen. They'd write a script together. It would fall apart. You know, whatever. It, yeah. it, it was just... Yeah. It, it's, and it's, so, but yeah. a lot of those early projects ended up becoming things later, later. on. And they usually do. Right. So, he... Uh, Truffaut had... Um, Truffaut had actually got something made and he like helped him with it you know mm-hmm. he was actually like on the crew and shit and I think that's where he got his real taste of like real real filmmaking you know and um, and so he also was uh, assisting with Romare who's another filmmaker in that same group and they kind of it seems like they kind of became real close right um, and so they ended up making they, they were trying to make a series of short films I think it was like four and I believe they only got the first one made, and it was called All the Boys Are Named Patrick, uh, which was directed by Goddard and Romare had wrote the script for it. And uh, that was uh, that was in, like, 56, 57. Mm-hmm. And by 58, he made his last, uh, his last short film, like, as a nobody, basically. So he, um, in 58, he, uh, he made... Oh, do I have the title in here? Uh, oh no, the, the, all the boys are named Patrick is his is that one, um, and so he made like some festival runs with that, and it seems like he met a lot of the people that really became like big big hitters, mm-hmm. like because he knew Truffaut already, who is like right, the biggest right, of the hitters, right. you know. But he he met like uh, like Jacques Demi and like uh, Jacques Rosaire and Agnes Varda. Who just recently died, and that's fucking. Uh, rest in peace. Yeah, it's uh, she's rest in peace. She's a straight pimp, dude. Agnes Varda is like a feminist god. She fucking <laughs> the shit she makes to her films are so fucking beautiful. I've never seen any of them. Um, I actually, check them out. I actually they're, never they're heard so, of her. They're so comfortable. Uh huh. That um, what's one that I might know? Um, because I know a lot of titles, but I don't know. They're all in French, and I don't obtain them. I just see them and go, "Oh, uh, I know that." You know, I, yeah, I don't yeah. like it. Doesn't okay. hold in there. Uh, I'll show you some some of her movies though. They're really really pretty. She's she's kind of one of the people that really like solidifies the look of the French New Wave, the color spectrum, the the framing, everything. You know, when you think of like the way uh, that those French movies look, yeah. At that time, she's one of the people that really like solidified that look. Um, and so once he met all those people, did did his festival run and stuff, he was like really itching to make uh, to make a feature film, you know. And so he went to Truffaut uh, to see because they they had collaborated to make a um, they had written a, a script together mm-hmm. like in '56, and this is now probably '59. Right. Um, and so he went to him and was like, "Hey, can I use this script?" Which was about like a it was about like a motorcycle cop. Uh, and it was, it, I mean, he, the, a lot of these movies at the beginning were like gangster films, you know? Right. I mean, that was a big thing. Right. Yeah. yeah. It was, and, and really on, even through the sixties, he made a lot of like gangster movies, you know? Yeah. And, uh, so he went to Truffaut and was like, yo, can I use your, use the script? And he was like, eh, we, and so, uh, <laughs> they, they, uh, he got, I, I, they, they, he took that script and then he had met a bunch of producers and shit, um, at these festivals and it seems like it was hard to get made mm-hmm. and i think it's because he hadn't really like proven himself that he could do right. it you know and so he had he tried through a bunch of people to get it made and finally actually did get it made later on um 
I don't believe that's actually the film that became his like big hit, you know? Mm-hmm. Because but his first one um, to really pop off uh, was in 1960. It was a film called Breathless, which is still held as probably one of his best movies. Um, and this was like it's kind of the like royal gorge of all the of all the shit in his movies. Like he used. Uh, a bunch of techniques that that really like when you when you look at a lot of them they're used as like they're or they're looked at as if they're mistakes now you know so like jump cuts huh like ju- jump cuts are like insanely hard to do without making them look like straight garbage you yeah. know or uh, or like character asides which is like Malcolm in the middle you right, know what I mean they're like running, yeah where they're, they're like, like they're you know what to, I mean yeah, yeah like, like talking to the camera yeah exactly so and he was like one of the first guys to really do that you know so nobody had like seen movies where you know the character turns to or, the camera or, or what if like did he do anything like with showing the actual operation of the film he did that like later on that's like like uh Le Chinois which was yeah. uh, I'll like talk about that film later on because that's more like in the political shit Era. late yeah of like late late in the 60s but yeah, he did. He did shit where like you'd see the clapboard, you'd see like everybody in the mirror with the boom poles and shit. Yeah. Or at the beginning of um, Contempt, like yeah, the yeah. opening shot, the first, it, the opening shot is them shooting the opening yeah, shot. Yeah. You know, I love. So I've it's like loved that. yeah, them running down the tra- or going down the track with the camera and the boom pole following them, and then it cuts and it shows the exact same shot that they took. Right. You know, but the first one you saw the camera and everything, but like, um, he uh, like. During that time, it like those those first few films, they call they call this like the this is like his new wave period. So this is nineteen sixty 1960 to nineteen sixty nine. Mm-hmm. Um, it's all of his films. They call them like they they were groundbreaking, but they were also also like conventional. You know, like they right. his his like Le Chinoisois is like one of the first ones where he did that kind of thing. But that's not like a conventional film, right? You know what I mean? And uh, and they weren't like political films. They were like narrative fictional films, you know. Right. But he did shooting techniques within them that were you know different. They were yeah, you know ground using like shit actual, people yeah. weren't using. And um, uh, hold on, let me just read. Um, Yeah, so, like, after this point, he kind of, like, after 1969, he, all the shit that he had been working with, and he called it all, like, bourgeois, you know, and what, he did 69 or? 50? Yeah, from 69, like, on. He oh, was, okay. he was like, this is, this is uh, uh, yeah, like, this is all pointless, this is fucking bullshit, you know? Yeah. And, uh, like, he didn't want to make just, like, narrative fictional film anymore, you know? Huh. And, uh. And it, it's, it's. You think it was just the political? He uh, got yeah. So that this is the part of him that I didn't really know about, yeah. and I'll get into. I'll, I'll let you do a section, and I'll get into that afterwards. But he got a. So he made loads and loads of films during this point. I like he made a film like either two films a year, or one at least, you know, mm-hmm. every single year. Uh, so there's there's a big bulk of work in there to watch through, you know. And you just called it bullshit. Well, no, I mean, he like I think he likes the films then, mm-hmm. but, like, I think he just That's saw no point in making narrative film yeah. anymore. Um, and so, but he, so during that point, uh, he started working with Anna Karina, mm-hmm. which is, like, kind of now, she wasn't actually, like, an actor before he really worked with her, um, but she has, like, the look, and now she's become, like, the icon of, of, of uh, the French New Wave, you yeah. know? Or just of French cinema, like if you think of a lot of French 
movies you think of her you know gotcha and he ended up marrying her and they made a, a production company together and they were married for most of that period uh probably i think up until like 68 um or 69 even maybe uh and he i think it was about four or five movies before he like really obtained like complete artistic uh freedom with the movies mm-hmm uh, so he was he made, running through like a production company? Yeah, I mean, he like, was going through production companies and shit. You know, he was. I mean, he's always had his shit funded. You right, know what I mean? He right. wasn't doing doing it himself. That wasn't really an option then. And it's kind of the same with like Pink Floyd. We were talking about this. Like, the reason they did it for so long before they actually did it was because we don't. They didn't have the opportunity that we have now, where like we can just fucking truce yeah, this bitch yeah. and get you know get it running. Well, and like, they and didn't like. Have- Obviously, they didn't have the technology, like, right? So, like, you needed somebody to give you money to, right. to actually to go do to the recording thing. studio, right? To, to pay for the yeah. Now, if we like, have this thing, yeah, you know, a computer, you, you we can, can do, do whatever, whatever we, we want. Do, yeah. And so he made um, he made a movie uh, with Corinna called um, The Little Soldier, which was it was like his bi- his biggest success within France. Um, like people, people like loved that movie. You know, they mm-hmm. loved they loved Breathless and stuff. Yeah, it did really well. But that's it. That's something that gained traction later on. Uh, Little Soldier really like boomed. You know, and so Columbia gave him a uh, hundred thousand dollars for his next film um, and complete uh, like artistic free freedom. Yeah, yeah, to do whatever he wanted. And a hundred thousand dollars for a film then, back yeah, then is like, a lot of money. It's like, and so now. yeah, he in, went in a way. It's like what? Like a couple million. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it'd be yeah, it'd be like if, if somebody just came and gave us like four or five million bucks to make a film, it'd be fucking crazy. Yeah, please times. just do that. Um, uh, and so once it, after that, after he was given that from Colombia, he made uh, La, uh, Las Les Caribanes, Las Caribaneers, and Contempt, which Contempt is my favorite movie by him. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen the other one, um, but this it's it's this is where. To me, where I see the most, like, of the Goddard look, the, like, the Goddard style, you know? Right. Which, like, if you watch his movies, it's always, like, it's a wide shot of a room, the walls are white, the, cat, you know, the furniture's really brightly colored, it's all really sleek. Yeah. You know, and there's, like, some couple, one of them's wearing, like, a, a Roman thing, you know, like he's... Like a toga. Yeah, he rolls himself up in a sheet, so he he looks like he's wearing a toga, and the chick's walking around naked, and they're arguing about something that they're not actually arguing about, but they are arguing about it, they're just not mentioning it, you know? Yeah. And it's like, that's like the Goddard that that I really love, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and that's, I wish that it could have stayed there, and I feel like that's where a lot of people wished it was, like, that his style would have stayed within, but... I mean, you know, you grow, shit has yeah, to I mean, change. You change as an artist as you go. Right. And so then after that is where you start to see like the political Goddard, which gotcha. I'll leave it there and I'll let you go. Okay. Let you go on yours. <laughs> All right. So now with Pink Floyd's international success came, after Gilmore joined the band, uh, they really kind of fucking hit their groove. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, they they released um, Saucer Full of Secrets and uh, Metal. Uh well, actually, metal became came after Adam Hart Mother. So it literally the the lineup of albums go: Saucer Full of Secrets, Adam Hart Mother, Metal, Dark Side of the Moon, uh, Wish You Were Here, Animals, and The Wall. Those are their big ones, mm-hmm. really, really internationally successful ones. Um, uh, after those uh, great albums, I'll, I'll just you know, I'll just start with Saucerful. Um, 
because it's their first one that just like really, after yeah. Piper uh, at the Gates of Dawn, like it kind of th- this is where it goes, you know. Well, and I hear the most Pink Floyd sound in Saucerful, right? Like that's that's to me where you hear like the beginning, the beginning, like, yeah, they're, they're, they're yeah. Come, you know. And I think it's because you know uh, Waters really took over as mm-hmm. the lead writer and everything. Um, so. In 1968, they they returned to Abbey Road, so EMI, uh, to record the out al- to record this album. And the and you know the kind of bittersweet thing about Saucer Fool is it was uh, Barrett's last um, contribution to the band itself. Mm-hmm. And so like just like it's just sad. Like you right. know it's like his last you know thing he ever did. I mean he had his solo stuff, but like the last thing for Pink Floyd. You mm-hmm. know? So they did that. Uh, Norman Smith, who uh, also uh, produced uh, the Beatles record and shit at Abbey Road, encouraged them to self-produce their music. Um, but they just, you know, they just decided to just record at Abbey Road in general. Um, they learned how to use the recording studio to release their artistic vision. However, Smith remained unconvinced by their music, and when Mason struggled to perform his drum part on Remember a Day on Saucerful, Smith stepped in as a replacement. Wright recalled Smith's attitude about the sessions. Quote, Norman gave up on the second album. He was forever saying things like, You can't do 20 minutes of this ridiculous noise. <laughs> uh, as neither Waters nor Mason could read the music to illustrate the structure of the album's title track, they invented their own system of notation. Gilmore later described their method as looking, end quote, like an, like an architectural diagram. <laughs> released in June of 1968, uh, the, re- uh, the release peaked at number nine, spending 11 weeks on the UK uh, billboards. Um, so Record Mirror uh, gave the album an overall favorable review, but urged listeners to forget it as the background. Forget it because it's more like a background music to a party. That's fucking mean, dude. Yeah, like we've received kind of something like that from one reporter before, but like to just be like, yeah, you're just like the background music to this party. Like no one's gonna pay attention. That's kind of like a that's bad publicity, man. It's um, a dick move. So, John, yeah, it is a dick move. John Peel described a live performance of the title track as like a religious experience, while NME described the song as a long and boring, with little to no warrant, its uh, monotonous direction. So, but you, John Peel's the real homie. Yeah, so like, yeah, real talk. Yeah, John Peel did some cool shit, man. But you can see that you know there's mixed. Emotion yeah, it was on. really yeah, really mixed. Uh, because you know, like reviews. Pink Floyd, you know, with their lengthy solos and shit like that. Like I guarantee people were like, eh, they weren't. I don't. I don't it wasn't. It wasn't fucking Rolling Stones where it's like right. Dur, dur, like it wasn't the right like the type. Well, of they rock weren't that doing. Were used they to. weren't doing like pop songs. You know? exactly. And so obviously there's going to be people who don't like that. Um, on the day after the album's release in the UK, Pink Floyd, uh, performed at their first ever free concert in Hyde Park. In July 1968, they returned to the U.S. for a second visit. So, mind you, after Piper the Gates of Dawn, they did an international, uh, or international tour to the U.S., which was pretty successful. I mean, mm-hmm. they were still, you know, just some U.K. band coming over just like everybody else. Right. And, but they were different, so people kind of remembered the name. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, they returned to the U.S. for a second visit, accompanied by Soft Machine and The Who, which really made them pop because, you know, The Who was the, the right type of music. Um, right. 
It marked Pink Floyd's first significant tour. In December of that year, they released Point Me at the Sky. No more successful than the two singles they had released since See Emily Play. It would be the band's last uh, single released until 1973 with the release of Money, which comes off of uh, uh, Dark Side of the Moon. Mm -hmm. So with that, I'm kind of going to skim over uh, Adam Hart Mother a little bit and Metal. Uh, so Adam Hart Me- Metal... Uh, uh, Adam Hart Mother uh, came out in 1970, and Del- David Gilmour fucking hated it. This, like, the thing that makes me bummed out mm-hmm. is, like, the fact that, like, I thought Gilmour was kind of, like, kind of like how you felt about Goddard. Like, I thought Gilmour was kind of, like, this quiet, like, laid-back dude, but he's kind of, like, a dick. A douche, yeah. Like, I like him. I think he's a phenomenal guitar player, and he really, like, helped shape Floyd as mm-hmm. far as just how he played and his songwriting with Waters, but to hear him just go, like, to take Adam Hart Mother and say it was a load of rubbish and we basically were scraping the barrel, like, I'm like, dude, that's a phenomenal record. Yeah, it's amazing, yeah. It's a great fucking record. I don't know what you're talking about. Maybe it's just, like, I'm an American, it's not my music, and I'm like, this shit's fucking cool. Right. You know, but I don't know. Well, it's like we talked about, I think it's probably that he wasn't as prominent on it, and so to him it's like, fuck it i don't like it that much right you know so after adam hart mother was released they uh they then started recording metal in which you know david gilmore had more um artistic freedom on that so Mm -hmm. obviously he was more happy with metal than he was with adam hart mother Mm -hmm. um even though uh, roger waters was like the lead songwriter of the whole record um Pink Floyd toured extensively throughout the U.S., uh, bringing lots of attention with both these albums, um, and that's where we're going to get to the juicy shit. Because um, right after that, they released Dark Side of the Moon in 1973, and I don't know if you guys ever heard that fucking album, but it is one of the defining moments in one of the Pink best Floyd. records ever I mean, it's, yeah. it is what, when you think of Floyd, you think of the prism. Mm-hmm. Like, even before The Wall, I think of the prison before right. anything. Um, so Pink Floyd recorded, recorded the, dark, or the Dark Side of the Moon between May 1972 and, and January 1973 at EMI uh, with staff engineer Alan Parsons at Abbey Road. The title is an allusion to lunacy rather than, a, rather than astronomy. So people, it makes sense. So if you're, like, listening to the album, the last two tracks, um, uh, so, like, Us and Them and Brain Damage and Eclipse, like you start to realize, like, the lunatic is, is inside my head. And I think it really notions to bear it. I mm-hmm. have this feeling that Waters, even though he was his friend, like, I feel like they kind of played, they kind of utilized, like, Like, used, used his story, kind of? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, like, I think that really, like, having, it was kind of like their first concept album before the war. Mm-hmm. Or even animals. Uh, the band had composed and refined the material while touring the UK, Japan, North America, and Europe. Producer Chris Thomas uh, assisted Parsons. Hypnosis designed uh, the packaging, which included George, George Hardy's iconic refracting prison design on the cover, which we all know. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is a fucking cool thing. And, and you know, uh, yeah, Hypnosis was a, a very big like kind of graphic design uh, music uh, cover company um and they pretty much did all of pink floyd's uh covers really um, i always kind of wondered about because they were they attached always to, had they were attached to EMI. emi yeah yeah they've always had to me the most iconic album covers right i mean like wish you were here is like 
I mean, I, there's there's something about every one of those records. The wall, actually, the wall is the only one that I feel like isn't. It's just the music that makes it that way, right? But, but like, I think, that's, but like the prism, but it and, is and a, wish you were here. I think like, it is a cool cover, though, and it's it is just cool. like a brick wall. Yeah, like, it is cool, but I just feel like it's like a little bit lacking when it like when you're as far holding as it up yeah, to like the yeah, prism. You know what yeah, I mean? True. Um, so hypnosis did that. Um, Thorgerson's cover features a beam of white light representing representing unity passing through a prism, which represents society. Um, the refracted beam of color light symbolizes uh, unity diffracted, leaving absence of unity. Waters is the sole author of all the lyrics. So that's when Waters really came into his own thing. Right. Where he's like, fuck it. Like, I'm the writer, dude. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm going to write all this shit. And this is how we're going to go. So it was since it was released in uh, March of 1973, the LP became an instant chart success in the UK and throughout Western Europe, earning enthusiastic response from critics. Um, each men- member of Pink Floyd, except for Wright, boycott- boycotted the press release of Dark Side of the Moon because a quadraphonic mix had not been completed. And they felt presenting the album through a poor quality stereo uh, slash PA system was insufficient. Melody makers Roy Hollingworth described side one as utterly confused and difficult to follow, but praised side two, writing, The songs, the sounds, and the rhythms were solid. The saxophone hit the air. The band rocked and rolled. Rolling Stone's Lloyd Grossman described it as a fine album with a textural and conceptual richness that not only invites, but demands involvement. That's a pretty bold, great statement. because. When I listen to that album, and I listen to that album all the fucking time, you have to be in like you have to be invested in it. Mm-hmm. Like you can listen to it like as background music, but when I listen to Floyd in general, I'm invested into the music because mm-hmm. I always hear something new or like something that I never really paid attention to, and I'm like, oh right. fuck, like I get this lyric. Yeah, that's now. how I like, feel about him too. I, every time I hear something, and I'm like, whoa, I'd never heard that before. Right, you know? it's like almost a new perspective every it's time. It's just you so to dense. Yeah. Those songs are so dense. Yeah, you know. Um, but demands involved. Throughout March of 1973, the Dark Side of the Moon featured as a part of Pink Floyd's U.S. tour. So they were still touring on old songs from Saucer Fool, Metal, Adam Hart Mother. Um, but you know, obviously they're going to play the hit. Mm -hmm. Um, the album is one of the most commercially successful rock albums of all time. A U.S. number one, it remained on the billboard chart for more than 14 years, selling more than 45 million copies worldwide. In Britain, the album peaked at number two, spending 364 weeks on the UK chart. Dark Side of the Moon is the world's third best-selling album till today and the 21st best-selling album of all time. Oh, I just debunked myself Um, of all time. The success of the album brought enormous wealth to the members of Pink Floyd. Waters and Wright bought large country houses while Mason became a collector of expensive cars. Disenchanted with their U.S. record company Capitol Records, Pink Floyd and O'Rourke negotiated a new contract with Columbia, who gave them a reported advance of $1 million, U.S. equivalant to $5 million in er, in 2019 dollars. In Europe, they continued to be harvest or represented by Harvest Records. So they had like a record split. So in the U.S., they had Columbia. In the U.K., they had Harvest. But still, like, imagine being, I don't know, 25. And you... you Is that whole day were at that Yeah, point? I, I'm, I'm just going off of just general age. Mm-hmm. Eh, maybe, maybe they're old. It might have been like 28. But imagine just someone going, here's a million dollars for an advance. 
do another record. Well, and you already just made bank too. That's yeah. the, you know. Yeah, forty-five million copies worldwide. How fucking insane is that? That is fucking nuts, dude. Mm-hmm. Like, I can't even imagine what that would feel like. Yeah, like, and yeah. it makes sense, you know. Like, they're young men. They're fucking getting all this money. Like, you can bet your ass, like, fucking homeboy uh, wants to go collect expensive cars. What is it, Jeremy Reiner? Fucking out here on Top Gear and shit. Right. Like, I don't know. I just think... That's probably what I would do, because, like, oh, yeah. I don't really care that much about houses and no, shit, you yeah, know, so yeah. it's, like, I would probably just get cool cars and fucking yeah, cruise fuck around. around. Yeah, yeah exactly. Like, that sounds like my um, shit, you know? So, that's gonna be... I mean, there's so much to Pink Floyd. Beyond that, yeah. Um, so, I'm gonna leave it off on Dark Side of the Moon. Okay. Um, so, I am gonna be doing a part two uh, following Wish You're Here all the way up through today, because they released a record, a record two years ago. They got back together and released a record two, three years ago. I mm-hmm. think it was 2016. So I think so, three yeah. years ago. So I'm gonna the next part of that is gonna gonna be all the albums all the way up until now from Dark Side, which uh, they're so good. Mm-hmm. All of them are so good. So I'll let you take it away all on right. yours. And- I'm not gonna do a part two, uh, but I'm gonna finish off. I'm we're now moving into the the political political side of of Goddard. Um, and so there's kind of two there's kind of two points there's there's like a transitionary period mm-hmm. like 1968 1969 and then from 69 up until like we'll just say 1979 just for fun because yeah. it kind of doesn't really have a real end to it but that's where they they called that the revolutionary period and some people called it like the the radical period it was like so the, before uh, sorry I didn't no really no no, no go ahead so like so the background of France right it was like you know, you had Russian influence coming into France. Right. So there's, there's actually a propaganda poster that I was looking at. And basically, you had... So you had France right here, and there's this dude, like, chopping off this, like, tentacle from this octopus coming from Russia. And it was, like, the Soviets, like, trying to strangle, like, Europe into right. communism. And so, just, like, as a heads-up for audience, like, France was experiencing a great governmental like shift shift yeah. and, and so, so well yeah. and this in within like the the circles that these people were running in they it to me it seems like it was really like the upper class are the ones that really kind of took to communism you know yeah and so uh which is weird goddard goddard was a maoist and in a lot of his films you can i mean he there's a lot yeah. of shit about that you know and um and so, if you don't know who Mao is, he was the emperor. Yeah, you? General Mao. Yeah. Um, or, yeah. And so they, uh, it's, I, I, when I started watching his films, I didn't understand that. Uh, like, I didn't know that. I didn't know the political sphere of, of which it was of, coming, of yeah. France, of, yeah. of where these films are being made. Um, now I understand it better. I'll talk about that in a little bit. But um, the first one that you actually start to see some, um, some like stuff where he's talking about the the what's happening in France right then, or kind of the giving a look into that mm-hmm. is uh, masculine feminine, which is actually one of my favorite ones of, of his movies, and it follows two like young lovers, you know, in in Paris, kind of they they seem like they're probably like sixteen, seventeen years old. They're just kind of fucking around, you know, they're yeah. doing doing dumb shit all over Paris, and it's like them and their groups of friends, you know. Yeah. And uh, in the film, there's there's like an inner title kind of thing, you know, that pops up, and it's a, it calls them the children of Marx and Coca Cola, 
And because uh, and, that was another thing he was real big on was like, uh, you know, capitalism and consumerism and how there's, you know, like Walt Disney and Coca-Cola and all that shit are, are just, right. they're just like these monsters, you know? Yeah. And um, so that was like, that was about as much as that film got, you know, just kind of given some a like, little taste, a little like, taste of it. And then really like the one that's like a big, like fucking boom in your face yeah. is Le Chinoisois, yeah. which is like, which is a great, film. it's really, I mean, yeah, it's a beautifully made film. And, and there's so much cool shit as a filmmaker watching it. You know, the whole thing yeah. we were talking about, about how you can see the film being made. Yeah. I love shit like that, you know? Yeah. Um, but like I said, I didn't totally actually understand the climate that the film was being made in. And I didn't understand that he himself was a, a Maoist. You know, I didn't. Right. I, uh, I just thought that he was like kind of giving a look into this, you know? Right. And uh, or just like, honestly, I feel kind of like like guilty because i did i like literally understood that so poorly that i thought it was like fictional you know what i mean yeah and uh i guess like when i watched it i knew france was see and i didn't stuck in this governmental shift i mean i'm like i'm into history right right exactly yeah yeah and like so i I, I, this has made me realize like i need to research that shit more read more about that stuff so that i understand these things better um but he so the the film follows like a group of student activists and it kind of gives a look into what was happening within like uh you know these like contemporary activist groups within France mm-hmm. at that point and it was there it it was a precursor to what uh came in the the events of like May 1968 which was like massive massive riots and shit right um and people say that it's it's almost scary how it foreshadowed that um, because the way that those kids were, I mean, they're blowing up cars and shit in the movie, and yeah. it, it and that wasn't happening yet, you know? Yeah. But so it started it's foreshadowing to. Yeah, it the... started to afterwards. Um, and But when it came out, uh, people hated it. They, they, they uh, the Chinese said that he completely misunderstood the movement. Um, People wanted him to quit making political movies. They wanted him to go back to making funny movies, gangster movies, whatever. You know, yeah. they just wanted they him wanted to, to make yeah. whatever, you know, other than that. Other than, and yeah. to him, I watched this movie while I was doing research for this uh, called Redoubtable. Um, now, I don't know how relative to actually how he really is. This It's a fictional movie. I mean, but it follows his life in this period. Mm. So it, it's, it, it opens with, like, him releasing uh, Le Chinoisois. Uh, or Le Chinois, I think maybe that's how you pronounce it. Um, the Chinese in, in, in English. Yeah. Um, and he... Uh, it's, it kind of shows him being, you know, people giving him bad reviews and shit and him kind of being like, well, fuck, I didn't realize that I misunderstood this, you know? And uh, but it also is written from uh, it's from a, a memoir written by his wife at the time who was uh, Anne uh, Wiazemski, mm-hmm. uh, who was the fil- the the star of that film. Oh, gotcha. um, was she the girl with the gun? Right. Yeah. 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 So she he married her that year. Gotcha. And it's kind of about like this this like you know they were in like the honeymoon phase and shit you know and it's like they were so in love for a little bit. But then he gets like really, really involved in the the, the movement. Yeah, like in May when all this shit starts going on, he gets super, super involved. And it also kind of shows. 
I thought it was an interesting idea if it's pretty, if it's like true to how he actually was, because it kind of shows all of his like shortcomings mm-hmm. and shows like his his faults within within thinking in, in that time, you know. Um, and he he quotes the movie as being a stupid stupid idea because um, <laughs> it's it makes him look like an asshole. Yeah. Um, but basically, all of the shit from all the people in that time, everybody was like, yeah, he was a fucking dick. Like, yeah. he. Uh, like in the movie, he, it's it shows like when they tried to shut down Keynes, him and Truffaut, and all these yeah. you know other people that were really involved in that, and they, um, so what they they tried to go and shut down, you know the Keynes uh, film festival, and his wife wanted to go to it, so she went out with all of her friends, and they were staying at a house in Keynes with another filmmaker, you know, and uh, who was just being like really generous, uh, you know, to like let them stay there. And fucking Goddard came out and was like no. just a prick the whole time, and and it was like kind of ruining their relationship, you know, yeah. and and um, like there's a scene where they drive back from Cannes to back to Paris, and he's just like they're in like a cramped car with like six people, and they're all just screaming at each other the whole time, you know, and like like I said, I don't know how true that actually yeah. is to what actually happened, but it really watch I shouldn't have watched this movie before doing a lot of the reading and stuff right because it completely like put a, it took like a, it put like a lens on my view of it of him just being a fucking prick you know yeah and uh and it completely changed my outlook on his movies it changed my outlook on him you know yeah and uh, and i literally had to like this whole week once i watched that movie this whole week i've been going through and just re-watching all of the movies that i love by him to like remind myself what i even liked about him because it was just like, why do I fucking like this person? Why do I watch his movies? Isn't you know, it, and um, it just sucks. Like, I, it does suck. And but like, then that you gotta have that like separation of art. And well, artists, that's that's yeah. what like by the end of it, by the end of the week, watching all of his movies and stuff, it's like, okay, I don't need to. I kind of, I, I had to tell myself like, I don't need to agree with him. I right. don't need to. Uh, I don't even need to understand right. the the politics behind it. Because I, I I am so disinterested in politics, right? And so it like it just goes way over way head, right yeah. over. I don't give a fuck, you know. And I know that's like to some people, that's that's fucking, fucking the end of the world if yeah. I say that. But to me, it doesn't it doesn't, it doesn't matter, matter to me that yeah. much, you know. And so when I see things that are really political, I have a hard time understanding them because I don't understand the feeling behind associ- them. Yeah, you don't associate with that. Thing. Yeah, and so like watching somebody be so like almost like fanatically political, right? It's like I don't understand where you're coming from at all, at all, yeah. you know. And uh, yeah, so I mean, this is where like you know he kind of he moves into like the revolutionary period right after that, or the radical period, or, or you know, some people just call it the political period, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and that's from like I said, like 1969 to like 1979. And he made loads and loads of films in this time period that are like still still considered like revolutionary within film. You know, they, mm-hmm. he did. They, they were really really low budget movies because not a lot of a people lot of wanted to fund, fund them. them. Yeah, because they're and, like, uh, afraid of the... right. I mean, they yeah exactly. Like people don't like to to associate with that stuff yeah. because it might bring fucking heat to them. You exactly. know. And I don't know how to uh, pronounce this, but um. Let me click on this and see if it'll give me a pronunciation. Um, 
hold on. I'm just going to look up how to pronounce it. He created a group of filmmakers that were all... Um, Oh, come on, just fucking say it. <laughs> Please. Don't you wish you were just fluent? Ziga Viertov. Okay. Whatever so, that was. Yeah, I'll play it again. Ziga Viertov. That's how you say it. Ziga Viertov. Yeah, so this is that's the that's the group that they made. It was like it was a small group of filmmakers. Um, the main one that Goddard really worked with was uh, Jean-Pierre Gorin. They they kind of seemed like they buddied up real hard, you mm -hmm. know, at that point. And they, they made loads and loads of films, like, in the early 70s. And then by the mid-70s, they were given, like, a, an actual, like, big-budget movie to do. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and you know, Jane Fonda was real big right. on, like, anti-Vietnam and stuff. Yeah. And so she um, they made an anti-Vietnam um film called uh tut, uh, tut bien that starred um yes montav and jane fonda and uh they were supposed to kind of tag team the directing on it but goddard got in a motorcycle crash like right before and uh and so goran basically had to do everything on his own after that Damn. and i think that like I think that Goddard probably like helped when he could, yeah, but I mean, it pretty I mean, much yeah. incapacitated. It's him, like you know? when Robert Plant got into his car crash. Right. At least they didn't make him do it. Like Robert Plant from Led Zeppelin, uh, when they were releasing, um, fuck, I can't remember the name of the album. Uh, it's the White Album, fucking, whatever. Uh, which 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 were we talking about? Led Zeppelin. Yeah, yeah. I, I just thought it was uh, kind is of it a three. Fun. No, no. It's it's the it's. One of their off albums. Oh, okay. Um, but uh, they he got injured, and then like they fucking Columbia made them made him fucking in a wheelchair sing. Like he had a crushed chest, and they made him put out the record and like f record this record. That's just a little small thing from Zeppelin. We'll do Zeppelin. Yeah, later, we'll do Zeppelin later on. But sorry. So during during cool. during that time, they uh, basically what they were doing is they'd make these low budget films and then they'd tour around with them to like colleges and other places where they could talk about them and they were kind of trying to create like a conversation mm -hmm. around the ideas that they had and um which it, it really it is uh, like honorable you know and i don't i don't agree with his like political stuff but it is i do admire that he really believed in something and made like a a stand at trying to like get people to understand where he was coming from you right. know what i mean and uh and like i said i don't understand the political sphere of where the, where france was at and stuff so it's it's hard for me to even like put myself in his shoes right. you know um but it is cool that they got this group of people and did this like in any way that they could yeah. basically um and so pretty much it, that that led up to like 1980 and from 1980 and on he kind of moved back to making like narrative, uh, fictional films and stuff. Yeah, because like, I uh, guess communism was kind of on the fall. Right, um, right. With the Cold War and everything, right? Yeah, and so I, I, he's and and since then he's done films on that are you know shot half on film, half on VHS, and then just shot weird, films yeah. on cell phone, shot you know just done all kinds of weird shit. And that's the that's the Goddard that like I love and I admire. 
Right. And because I think that's how I want myself to be. But artistically, you know, like I think you go through changes. So right. No, like, and that's what I was kind of saying is like, or g- going to say is that I admire that he never stopped uh, moving. He's never stopped innovating, you know, right. and he's, he's always tried to do something new and different every single time he makes something. Mm-hmm. And that's what I admire the most about him, you know? And like, that's what I want to be as an artist is like somebody that never quits moving, right. you know? Or never try, never stops trying new things. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because then, if you do, you become stagnant. And yeah, and it, it, I, it just had to, I just had to like look at that, look at the films I love by him, and just realize that like, Separate. yeah, I'm made in the way that I'm made, and he is made made in his. You know? Yeah. And I can love his films and I can admire them, but I just don't have to make those types of films. You know right. what I mean? No. Yeah. And and, like, uh, and so I mean that's basically that's pretty much it on on God. Goddard. And I like I've I've said, I'm kind of mad that this was my first like episode like this. Like we, you know, I made my whole list of people I'm gonna do, put it in a random selector, and got him. And I was just like, I literally was like, fuck, yeah, you know, because I, I told myself whoever it is, I'm gonna do it, you know. Yeah. And uh, but I knew that he was such a dense character, and. I mean, that's good for a first thing because there's a lot of research. You know, there's a lot of shit about him. A lot of it's easy to research him, but it's also like you want to cover him honestly. Yeah. And it's like, I've never done this. So how am I, you know, how am I going to like actually do it well? You know, know, it's like, even for me, when I got Floyd, like I knew, I was like, I mean, I'm a huge fucking fan. Right. And like, I'm a huge fan of him. So like I said, even with Gilmore, I, I just. It put a bad taste in my mouth. Like, mm-hmm. just hearing his name now kind of annoys me. Because mm-hmm. I'm like, man, like, you guys have written, you, y'all have written records that, like, I think were fucking beautiful. And mm-hmm. then to hear Gilmore trash them because he wasn't as prevalent on it, it makes mm-hmm. it sound very pretentious to me. Right. And, and like, like, that's what, that's the thing that, like, made me not enjoy him as much was that, like, he just seemed really, really stuck up and pretentious, yeah. and it, mainly, it was that film, which is a fiction. You know, it's it's a it's a fictional film. I mean, by or semi-fictional, I guess I should say. Um, but still, it's like you know, put this taste in my mouth about yeah. him. Yeah. And uh, and so I'm kind of pissed off that I even watched that movie. But, but hey, I still, mean, I mean, it gave me an outlook on him that I hadn't gotten yeah, exactly. before. So I guess that's a good thing. But uh, but anyway, yeah, um, that's that. I mean, so. This is obviously part one of my Pink Floyd excursion. We'll go through the fucking, the shit, the fucking ravine of beautiful music uh, on the next episode of True Side Talks. A couple announcements, like always. Uh, If you want to be healthy, live happy, feel motherfucking good, go to LairdSuperfood.com, motherfucker. Dude, the shit is good. Just do it. Like, Performance mushrooms, man. Chaga, lion's mane, cordyceps, maitake, and a motherfucking powder, dude. All you gotta do is take a teaspoon. It's gangsta delicious. Put that shit in your favorite beverage, and you'll feel fucking so good. So fucking good, dog. Like, I can't even tell you, like, how good it is. You just gotta do it for yourself. So go ahead, go to LairdSuperfood.com. Get your cognitive function reset. Get your brain stimulated with all their great products. Uh, they have creamers, coffee, obviously the performance mushrooms. They have mugs, hydro flasks, water bottles, fucking everything you can need to live healthy and happy and feel good every day of your motherfucking natural life. Um, so if you want to get 20% off your first purchase, type in promo code TRUESIGHT20 at checkout. Get that 20%. TRUESIGHT, TRUESIGHT, TRUESIGHT. Oh, dude, so, such a good deal. 
Um, I mean, really, it pays for itself. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, like By I said. By making you a motherfucking genius. You want to make yeah. 2001 a Space Odyssey? Fucking get fucking, some layered uh, fucking mushrooms in your yeah. brain. Get them in your brain, dog. Put that shit in your so, fucking brainstem, dog. LayeredSeaverFood.com forward slash TrueSide20. Get that 20% off, baby. And don't forget, we got a Patreon account. We trying to make that money. We're trying to live. We're trying to live, and we're trying to make shit for you. So go to patreon.com slash truesite network, and you'll find our Patreon page. I'm going to start posting uh, podcasts on the page, so you could also listen from there, which is a fucking fat deal. Fat, we fat. have uh, tiers that you can subscribe to for just a single dollar. You can get early access codes. You can get pre-sale uh, links. And those are so that you can see us in person. Yeah. You can get you can look at us. I'll give you, you my can, address. You, you can come can, hang out. You can just, just run up and push us if you don't if, like us. Yeah. Or I might fuck you up. I'm gonna fight back but. if you try to push me, but you get the opportunity. That's what I'm saying. Right. So uh, use our promo code, give us a dollar, so you can fucking hit me and I'll hit you back. Yeah. And, and then, then I'll can, buy you a beer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a classic exchange. Um Anyways, also with that being said, we have True Sight Weekly Roundup on Mondays uh, when people actually send us our picks. Yes, I'm calling y'all bitches out again. Motherfuckers. I know how you listen to this shit. <laughs> send me your picks and we'll give them to the people. We The people need the music, dog. The people need it. So on every Monday, I update the Spotify playlist True Sight Weekly Roundup. Each member sends five songs of their picking. That's choosing we, choosing yeah that's what i was looking for <laughs> and really it just gives you an insight to what we're listening to and it's um, a great way to find new music yeah it's wonderful um with that being said uh satellite pilot has a record that's on the books and it's called lovely day if you haven't checked it out it's on spotify and all your other favorite streaming services uh we also are in the factory conjuring up something new for y'all it's making up them fucking swamp noises fucking tasty Pulling them out of the mud. That's what we're doing. And last but not least, we have a YouTube account. And if you want to see the video versions of our podcast, go to fucking faces. Go to True Sight Network. See my face. True Sight Network slash or YouTube.com slash True Sight Network. You can find skits, music videos, the video versions of the podcast, and other wacky shit that we decide to put on. There'll be loads of shit in the future. Fucking uh, films, fucking whatever, whatever, whatever we want to do because it's our fucking show and we'll cry if we want want to. to, Anyhow. Well, that's the episode, folks. We love you. Song of the day? Uh, No. Song of the day is only on Monday. Okay, well, I'll do film film of the week then. I'm going to say Contempt by Jean-Luc because... It's, uh, he's it's the guy of the week. Yeah. Also, favorite movie of his, so. Hell yeah. Contempt. Actually, I'll throw out an album. Go listen to fucking Dark Side of the Moon. Or actually, fuck that. Go listen to motherfucking Adam Hart Mother, dude. Yeah, Just fuck Gilmore. check that shit out. It's fucking good. Anyways, yeah. uh, we love ya. Thanks Peace for tuning into the show. Now, we'll have that part two coming soon, and we'll have some other cool shit. Goodbye. We love you. Well, it's all right Riding around in the breeze Well, it's all right If you live the life you please Well, it's all right Doing the best you can Well, it's all right As long as you lend a hand You can sit around and wait For the phone to ring 
Waiting for someone to tell you everything Sit around and wonder what tomorrow will be